Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored today to be joined by Johan Norberg, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and leading thinker and scholar on capitalism, liberalism, and globalization. His latest book, The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World, has received a ton of critical acclaim, including from Elon Musk himself. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including why such a book is needed, what capitalism's critics get wrong, and how to strengthen capitalism and globalization for the future. Johan, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me on the show. You wrote the book In Defense of Global Capitalism approximately 20 years ago, at a time when the biggest opponents of free trade and globalization were on the left, and their principal concern was the exploitation of people in poor countries by global multinational corporations. Fast forward 20 years, and the principal critics of globalization are now arguably on the right, and their objections are sort of the opposite in a way. They may be prepared to concede that globalization has served the interests of poor people in countries like China and India, but it's come at the expense of middle-class workers in developed countries. In effect, we've seen a convergence in inequality globally and divergence within developed countries themselves. Talk a bit about that transition in terms of the opposition to globalization, and if you think there's any merit to it. Yes, it's a very peculiar transition, and I can notice it myself because 20 years ago when I made these arguments, free markets, free trade, limited government. People said I was on the crazy right, and that was the problem. <laughs> now when I make exactly the same argument, some people say that, look, this is a sort of woke leftist globalist. <laughs> so now I'm being attacked from, from the right. But I think it goes to show that opposition to economic freedom and free markets will always be with us. But what they're opposed to, to that changes uh, with current events, with the changes that take place. And the major change that has happened in the past two decades, I think, is that it's very difficult for anyone to make the case anymore that capitalism and free trade and foreign direct investment hurt poor countries and make the, the poor poor around the world. Because we've seen the rise of, of Asia, Indonesia, India, Bangladesh, China, and so on. We've seen the greatest poverty reduction that the world has ever seen. Some 130,000 people have been lifted out of extreme poverty every day. But now people just pocket that and say, oh, yes, but there must be some problem with this because they still think that the economy is a zero-sum game, that if someone gains, somebody else loses. And that is why I think that many 
on the right, on the nationalist and populist right in in the US and Canada and Sweden and all over the West, they say that, yes, apparently globalization, global capitalism was good for everybody else, but we must be the ones who are suffering. And I'm trying to address that in the book as well. You anticipated my next question. As I was reading the book and listening to some of your accompanying comments, it did strike me that the idea of positive sum economic arrangements is very hard for people to get their heads around. It's almost as if, as you say, we're hardwired to believe that if someone is doing well, it's because someone else isn't. Talk about the psychology of zero-sum thinking, how it's come to influence the globalization debate. Yes, this is the uh, the economic myth that launched a thousand mistakes in, in on various issues. It's the idea that for anyone to ever prosper, to gain, to get more tomorrow than he has today, he has to take it from somebody else. There's a limited amount of wealth, and we can just redistribute it in various ways. And that goes against everything that we learned over the past 200 years, which shows that, I mean, in in, in the West, we've increased the our average income by some 3,000%, so 30-fold increase. We've gone from rags to riches in, in a dramatic fashion, and that's because of innovation, creating things in a better faster, cheaper day away tomorrow than today. And on a free market, then any kind of exchange only happens if both parties think that they will come away from that exchange better off. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. So in every way, a free market economy is a positive sum game. However, it's very difficult for our minds to wrap, to wrap our minds around that. And I, I think that's because it's fairly new economic growth and innovation. We've had it since the Industrial Revolution, but of course our brains come are older than 200 years and they were developed in an era that was much more risky, much more tribal, and where we didn't have much of economic growth or innovation. So if somebody was richer back then, he probably took it from you. So it made sense to be a bit suspicious. And unfortunately, we still have those Stone Age brains trying to understand the modern economy. Well, I'm generally a proponent of globalization and free trade. I admit that I've been a bit wobbly at times in recent years in light of the deaths of despair, the rise of disruptive politics, etc. Yet, one of the best parts of your new book is that it revisits the major accomplishments over the past 20 or 30 years. And I was struck by how significant they are. Talk, for instance, about the rise of GDP per capita over the past quarter century and how much of today's modern wealth has really been generating during the lifetimes of those born essentially in this century? Yes, this is counterintuitive because we tend to think of the past few decades as a time of trouble. And of course, we've had major disasters and, and problems, global financial crises, and we've had uh, terrorist attacks, we've had war and chaos in the Middle East, and a pandemic that shut down the whole world. But Still, another interesting data point is that these 20 years were actually the best 20 years in human history. If we look at long-term trend lines, objective indicators of human well-being, then we see things like how how extreme poverty was reduced faster than ever. Child mortality was uh, declined by almost half during these 20 years. And when it comes to average incomes, the uh, GDP per capita, the accum- the wealth that all of us can, uh, are able to produce. And if we measure that by, by GDP per capita, it's a bit of a simplification, but it's, um, it's better to be sort of having some sort of number on, on what goes on in the world. Then it turns out that 
around a third of all the wealth that we have ever been able to attain was produced during these 20 years. So we must have been doing something right. Extraordinary. On a similar line of discussion, one of the striking things of the economic trends over the past quarter century is that America has pulled away from a lot of its peers. Notwithstanding the anxiety and negativity in American political culture, its economic engine continues to turn along. Let me ask you about that a bit. Are you worried that U.S. political dysfunction could eventually become a break on the U.S. economy? And more generally, talk about the factors that explain American dynamism, especially compared to Europe and other developed countries. Yes, this is interesting. How you look at America today is all dependent on whether you look at politics or economics, because if you look at politics, you'll be depressed (laughs) because it really doesn't make sense whatsoever. But for some reason, they keep on producing wealth and new competitive businesses and, and new innovations and much better than than Europe over the past um, few decades. We were roughly at the same stage uh, at the time of the global financial crisis. So now on a, a GDP per capita basis, there are some 20% richer suddenly than, than we as Europeans. Why is that? I think that even though politics doesn't function, it it's a bit of a gridlock, nothing much happens. Sometimes that's good if it means you you don't wreck things and you allow people to continue doing their things. And I think something that really helps is that America has very deep financial markets, venture capital, which means we're much more reliant on banks in, in Europe, which means that if you're a eccentric in a garage, you have to go to the your local banker for a, a loan. And you're better off with a vast ecosystem of diverse funders because then you might find some other eccentrics who actually believe in your AI model or or what have you. So I think that goes a bit some way to explaining it. However, I am worried about it because at some stage it might be that if politics is just too dysfunctional, you might end up ruining something. And uh, I think we can see that with some of the um, plans from from the American left on massive spending, whatever it uh, it takes, and some on the right of uh, sort of Trumpian tariffs on the 10% level, which would really hurt America, which has been so successful because it's an open economy. We'll come back to this subject later in the conversation, Johan, because you're raising alarms that the Chinese government is, in effect, moving in this direction. That is to say, the government is making a series of choices that are going to undermine the progress that free markets have produced for Chinese people. Uh, But before I get there, I want to return to another psychological tendency that can distort our understanding of these issues, uh, and that's nostalgia. There's an inherent assumption in so much of our individual outlooks and our collective politics that things were better in the past. You write, for instance, about the tendency to lionize automotive production in a factory in Detroit in the middle of the last century. Talk about why our perception of that era is wrong and about the tendency towards nostalgia more generally and the way it can distort our understanding of the present. Yeah, nostalgia is tricky because we've all got it, right? Because at least when I'm thinking of when, at what time was popular culture the best and the best music was produced? Obviously, it was when I was in my teenage teenagers, right? Uh, in my, my late teens. Then, and, and I think this often happens when I talk to audiences and I ask them, so 
if you believe in the good old days, when were they? And it turns out that everybody says it's around when they were 15 to 25, because then the world is still exciting, but it feels kind of safe. And then you grow up and you have kids and you pay the bills and you have to start worrying about all the things that can go wrong in the world. And you age and suddenly all the exciting innovations, they suddenly just seem like something that makes the, the world seem incomprehensible. So I think it's a very strong personal emotion that can be exploited for political purposes. And it often is of saying we'll we'll bring back something. And and nowadays we've got this the 1950s. That's where lots of people, especially baby boomers, would like to return to and Detroit's automotive sector. That must have been great. But then a useful corrective against nostalgia is to talk to people who actually experienced this and talk to them about, and, and especially reading their, their diaries and their explanations of what was it like back then. And it turns out that those jobs were precarious and they were dangerous and they were low paid and uh, they often had to get a second job, even in the automotive industry, a second job to, to afford um, paying the bills. But some actually did better than others. There was a cohort of those who got a job in the um, automotive factories in Detroit around 1953, heavily unionized and uh, paid very well. So they were better off compared to everybody else back then because it was still a very desperately poor economy. But what was that like in today's uh, purchasing power? Well, those few lucky ones who got those jobs, they earned something around $1.3 in an hourly wage, which is now adjusted for inflation slightly below the typical entry-level salary Amazon pays its warehouse workers today, which is rarely considered sort of this is the golden age of, of jobs. So I think it's it's very useful to talk to, to people who actually experienced it and to and to historians who talk to those people. We've talked about globalization's accomplishments and successes. I want to ask you about its challenges or perceived challenges. Let me ask you in particular about the so-called left behinds. What did we get wrong? What should we have done to ensure that the dispersed benefits and concentrated costs of globalization, particularly within developed countries, were more broadly distributed? This is something that we should have thought about a long time ago. And it's not just related to this era of, of global capitalism, you know, the famous rust, American rust belt began to, to rust even in the 1960s. They've been losing manufacturing jobs since, since the golden era, basically, because this was an era that managed to become leader of the world when the rest of the world was on its knees after the Second World War. The industries were destroyed and the young men were killed on the battlefields. So for a brief era, they could produce these goods for the whole, whole of the rest of the world. Once they began, and then actually even in the 1950s, but especially in the 60s and 70s, once Europe was rebuilt, um, they, they faced this competition. And America lost more jobs in manufacturing in the 1960s and 70s, then in the era of NAFTA and the World Trade Organization. So we should have started to think about things even then, but hey, better late than never. And I think the major misconception is that we thought that we could just buy our way out of these problems with a fairly generous benefits systems, especially disability benefits, which became easier to 
to access and, and lots of, of payments to stick around and stay unemployed rather than to move to where the jobs are. One labor economist told me that every dollar that America spends on the unemployed, just one cent is going to some sort of retraining or pe paying people to, to move to where the jobs are. 99 cents are being used to just pay people to stay behind. And then what you lose is not just sort of your income, then you lose your participation in, in society. And often that comes with a, a lack of, of trust, a lack of self-confidence, a lack of community. And it's, it's, it's very dangerous to them, but also for, for the rest of, of society and I think to our politics. So we're going to have to start to think about how we get to the safety in moving on to the next place rather than staying behind. I want to ask you about China now. Dating back to the end of the Cold War, there's been an assumption that Chinese integration into the global economy would reduce the risk of geopolitical conflict and ultimately contribute to political reform within China itself. It's fair to say that in 2023, critics would argue that that bet has not paid off. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, do you agree with that? And second, if so, what did we get wrong? What sets of assumptions about China proved mistaken? Well, I think that's correct. China is a tremendous disappointment, not the least to me, who expected that economic reform and increased growth would be followed by a political opening and a less of an aggressive posture internationally. What did we get wrong? I think that the reason why this happened is that the present leadership in China, the post-2010 leadership, and especially under Xi Jinping's rule, they saw the same things. They saw how the economic opening, the increased wealth of, of China began to unleash forces that they couldn't control. And they become became afraid of citizen groups, of organizations, of independent businessmen and independent businesses that began to speak out on many of these issues. It was incredibly important forces, definitely the kind of forces that once upon a time democratized um, Western countries. So that was happening. That was built into this whole process. But what happened then was instead of giving them a greater say in, in things, there was this authoritarian backlash. The parts of the Communist Party that didn't want any kind of compromise, any kind of opening, they began to push back and destroy these forces and to nationalize the organizations, destroy independent businessmen and even famous tech entrepreneurs and forcing them to retreat from public life, if not putting them in jail. So in a way, I think all those forces were there, but there's always, unfortunately, some free will for dictators. They can begin to bend when the wind blows, or they can just harden their resolve and push back, which might mean that eventually they'll break completely and, and uh, something else might happen. But for the moment, the forces of repression has won out. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, 
poetry, we've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday, a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. You just outlined the political response by the Chinese regime to some of these trends. I want to ask you now about its economic response. One of the most interesting arguments in the book is that China's growth was a function of globalization rather than state planning or industrial policy as as the story is often told. And in fact, as the Chinese state comes to play a greater role in the economy over the past decade or so, it's come to undermine the type of growth that pulled millions out of poverty. China remains quite poor on the basis of GDP per capita. And so the book describes a kind of tragedy in a way. Their government's flinching when it comes to free markets is risking to freeze China at levels that won't see it raise ultimately to a developed world status. Talk about these risks for China and the world as the country's political leadership abandons free markets. It's almost a morality tale made China successful, incredibly successful for more than three decades, was that it allowed economic forces to uh, grow from the bottom up. It was really a series of grassroots revolutions. It started with farmers in the late 1970s, hungry farmers who secretly began to dismantle collective agriculture and privatize the land. And that increased agricultural productivity, created very entrepreneurial village economies. And then the young in cities began to demand the same rights to uh, start businesses. And the genius of the then Chinese leadership, and especially Deng Xiaoping, was not in conceiving of this or planning it or anything like that. It was in accepting it when they saw the results and allowed more of these market forces to experiment and in export processing zones, special free zones, and eventually in the whole economy. That created the growth, not the state-owned businesses, because yes, there was heavy government involvement as well, but they consistently picked the, the least productive state-owned businesses. And when they pushed cheap credit and lots of resources into those businesses, they became even less productive. So they were a drag on the growth. Everything came from this entrepreneurial perspective. However, this more authoritarian uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party under Xi Jinping has sort of, they got high on their own supply and began to believe their own myth that this was their own creation. And were so afraid about the forces unleashed by market forces. So they've stifled independent entrepreneurs and came in with a much stronger, heavy-handed intervention into the economy, directing credit and subsidies to particular industries. And this has consistently disappointed. And this is one reason why China's growth rate has consistently disappointed in the past few um, years. And it's a, at a dangerous moment because catch-up growth is over. There aren't many simple business models they can imitate anymore. And the population is shrinking. So There are few farmers they can put into factories and into newly built apartments. So now they're standing there without this entrepreneurial growth engine with piles of debt from all these subsidies, all these bailouts, and with a a 
an increasing problem of actually refinancing it all. We're seeing in the real estate sector right now, but eventually we might see it over the whole economy. And that's that's dangerous for China and potentially for the world. I want to ask a couple of questions about how we think about economic policy making within our own countries. We used to be principally concerned with reducing absolute poverty, but one gets a sense that people in our society are increasingly motivated by questions of relative incomes and wealth. It's no longer enough to pull millions out of poverty globally and lower poverty rates within our own countries to unprecedented historic lows. The main concern these days, it seems, is inequality. When do you think that happened and what explains this change? Well, I think that happens for a good reason. It's the fact that we managed to reduce extreme poverty, the deepest misery and, and hunger. And uh, once we've done that, and in, in the West, especially after the Second World War, we begin to think of other things. And we're beginning to think of um, where are we in relationship to others, including the whole status hierarchy that might be uh, related to issues like that. So in a way, it happens uh, for a good reason. It's that we've solved the immediate threats to, to our existence, and then we begin to care about other things. The problem, if, of course, is that you can level in, in different ways. You can level up or down. And if, if we, this creates the kind of resentment where we don't want to see successful businesses and rich entrepreneurs, well, in that case, uh, we will all be equally poor. And it's important that instead it comes from um, raising the bottom. A book that had a major impact on my thinking as a young person was Irving Kristol's Two Cheers for Capitalism. He essentially argued that while capitalism is the most efficient system for allocating scarce resources, and it solved for our material needs better than any other alternative, it was poorly positioned to compete with more totalizing ideologies or worldviews because it didn't seek to answer so-called first things. What in your mind is liberal capitalism's biggest challenge and how can its intellectual modesty match the ideological ambitions of alternative models? I think there is something to that argument. I mean, we don't have a flag. We don't have simple slogans. So we, it's difficult to jump onto the barricade in some sort of common project uh, when it comes to capitalism and free markets, because the whole point is individual liberty rather than uniting under a, under one banner. And that might create problems in the competition against other belief systems that tries to give you something more, uh, a common project, meaning, identity. And so it might mean that we lose some votes. <laughs> But on the other hand, we do it because this is also the strength, I think, in the whole project of, of liberal capitalism, because this is what unleashes more ideas, makes it possible for us to solve more problems, because we have more diverse eyeballs looking at all the problems and more diverse brains thinking hard on, on how to solve these, uh, these problems that we have. And uh, and yes, there is not this one fixed solution, this one common project. And I think that is necessary, especially in a world that becomes more diverse, not just because we come from more places, but because we are brought up in different ways and we follow different media and we develop in very diverse ways. Then when you want this one unitary common identity, 
I think what we end up is is with tribalism, different uh, groups fighting for their diverse projects and trying to stuff it down the throats of the others. And, and so at some point, we're going to have to abandon that whole idea that we will come up with one fixed solution for, for everyone, because I think that is threatening democracy and civil peace in a way. I want to wrap up, Johan, with a few questions about globalization itself and what, if any, reform should be undertaken to strengthen it and secure public buy-in into the future. In particular, let me ask you, what, if any, changes do you think need to be made to the institutional and policy architecture of globalization? We've had previous guests who've called for new values-based alliances, as well as those who've argued for a new Bretton Woods system. What's the Norberg plan to strengthen the global trading model? I think that the most important thing there is when it comes to international governance is to tie ourselves to the mast. Because we, like Odysseus, I mean, we know what's... Sorry, that's the cat uh, making a noise. <laughs> Very much opposed to international governance, by the way, and any kind of governance. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> Because, I mean, we know what's in our best interest long term. It's peaceful coexistence and it's mutually beneficial free trade and openness to investments and not trying to undermine that with sudden rule changes or nationalization and so on. But in every single instance, there's this temptation to just we can sort of cheat a little bit and, and just do this because... It might there might be this sort of local constituency in, in favor of this. You know, one American poll said that they would be in favor of uh, destroying 5,000 jobs in a neighboring country, say Canada, if it saved one job in the U.S. Well, the problem is that in that case, the Canadians might say the same thing. In that case, let's destroy 5,000 jobs in, in the U.S. to save one Canadian job. So then the result is we save two jobs and lose 10,000. So... We need to come up with systems whereby it's not any kind of world government or even international multilateral government, but a system of rules that we all agree to, saying that, look, it's better not to destroy those 10,000 jobs and implement arbitrary tariffs or suddenly nationalize investments here and try to stick with the rules and perhaps even some sort of appellate body that could we could turn to instead of starting trade wars. The World Trade Organization tried a little bit, but unfortunately, the, the sort of appellate body where it's completely out of order. So trying to restore some of that would help us to be as rational as Odysseus was when he tied himself to <laughs> One change over the years has been the level of ambition reflected in free trade agreements themselves. In the past, they were principally focused on tariff reductions. Over the past couple of decades, we've seen free trade agreements cover issues ranging as widely as procurement to intellectual property and virtually everything in between. In your mind, Johan, are there diminishing returns when it comes to the kind of comprehensiveness of these free trade agreements that, yes, they may enable a greater trade on the margins, but if they come at the expense of public support, they may not ultimately be worth it for those who are, are invested in free trade and globalization? I think that's a very good point. One reason why this happened was that it seemed like trade negotiations functioned. 
so this is an ancient belief. This is the sort of 80s, 90s when it still um, functioned pretty well. And few other international agreements were really that successful. So they, lots of politicians thought that they could take anything that they thought was important and put in into trade agreements and then something would happen. So patent protection, intellectual property, as you said, labor standards, environmental standards, and so on and so on. And often there were good intentions behind this, but I think it creates two problems. One is the risk that too, the more you're trying to agree upon, the less likely you are to agree, <laughs> obviously, especially when it comes to sensitive issues like this. But also, it might create popular resentment because suddenly it seems like uh, these policies are not something that we're in charge of here, voters in our country, but instead it's something done by trade negotiators and multilateral organizations. So I think it's important to stick to the simple, uh, as simple as it is, mutually beneficial trade and, and make sure that that sticks. If we can fix that, that'll help us quite a lot. Yeah, I was just saying parentheses, that principle can also be used in, in negative ways. Think, for instance, efforts by governments around the world to try to agree to a, a floor on corporate tax rates to, in effect, protect jurisdictions that wanted to have higher corporate tax rates from the economic consequences of their choices. So I think your instinct is right. We ought to have conditions for broadly free exchange while still enabling domestic governments to enact policies in different areas that reflect their own priorities and, and preferences. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about free trade, globalization, and climate change, given that this is a subject that you think and, and write frequently about. It's an issue, incidentally, that concerns Canadians a great deal, because as major exporters of energy, we are, in effect, producing emissions in our own country for the purposes of selling energy to other countries around the world. Do you envision some future, Johan, where we secure some kind of global arrangement between energy producers and energy consumers that better reflects the distribution of emissions. Your guess is as good as mine. I, I know <laughs> that there's plenty of will and interest in, in doing this. Where that might lead, we'll, we'll see. But I think in relationship to globalization uh, as such and, and environmental destruction, I think it's incredibly important to combat some myths about this. Uh, obviously, there are some instances of transport and production and uh, energy-related such that has a, an environmental effect. But oftentimes, people just think of transportation as such as the big problem. The fact that we buy goods from far away, that that's something that uh, we should stop doing because it's, it hurts the environment. But you know what? The average food basket in the average European country, how much uh, does of the carbon dioxide emissions come from transportation? 6%, no more than 6% of the carbon dioxide emission come from transport. Most of it come from land use and energy use locally when you produce something. So actually, if you can produce it just a little bit more environmentally friendly on the other side of the planet, it might actually be better for the environment than producing it locally. So, so that's an important part of, of the equation. The other one is that I don't know what will be the best green tech solutions in the future. And I very much doubt that uh, our politicians know, but I know <laughs> that once 
eccentrics in garages and then scholars and engineers and entrepreneurs come up with the solutions. We need an, as, an economy that's as open as possible so that it's incredibly smooth and easy to use these technologies all around the world. One of the weirdest things we've got is tariffs on green technology. That's really a way of undermining both trade and, and the planet. Final question, and I want to return to my first one. You've been writing in defense of or the case for global capitalism for well over 20 years. Where do you think things stand now? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? That's a great question. And it so much depends on which section of the new news I read for the moment. <laughs> Whether I look at what goes on in politics, then I'm a pessimist because, you know, Western politics seems to uh, try be fairly self-destructive for the moment, and some authoritarians are on the rise in Russia and China and terrorist groups like like Hamas. On the other hand, when I read about business, the business section and the technology section and science magazines, then I see that science fiction. They are coming up with solutions to the problems that are being created in the political sphere. So it really is the best of times and the worst of times right now, with lots of big government and strong men and authoritarians trying to undermine progress, but innovators and entrepreneurs constantly innovating ourselves out of the mess that's being created. So it turns me into a qualified optimist. It seems like there's some life left in in the global economy and in all the the crazy innovators out there. Well, if one's in search of qualified optimism, I'd encourage them to read The Capitalist Manifesto, Why the Global Free Market Will Save the World. Johan Noberg, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>